Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, it's Judy Gould and this is Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. Welcome to this series on the podcast all about leadership. Each episode in this series will be a one-on-one interview with a leader, someone who has taken a position of leadership in their community and is trying to make a difference. We'll hear from academic leaders, research leaders, industry leaders, young leaders, as well as somebody who studies leadership and what it really means. As part of the conversations, I try to find out what they think leadership is, how they got to the positions that they're in, where they learnt their skills, and what they think of the scientific leadership we have at the moment. There's a big drive to increase diversity in leadership positions, and Charu Kaushik is on a mission to make this happen. Charu is the scientific director of the Canadian Institute of Health Researchers Institute of Infection and Immunity in Canada, and she is also a research group leader at McMaster University, where she studies women's health and reproduction. So in this episode, we cover diversity in leadership and why it's important, adapting your personality to fit a certain expected style of leadership, and also what leadership courses really teach you. So to get the ball rolling, I asked Charu how she defines leadership. Leadership to me is being a role model, having a sphere of influence that others don't, and C, being able to use that to make changes, you know, or do things better, or yeah, really about making change. For a lot of people, leadership is about personal ambitions, right? Like, do you have the power? Do people see you as having the power? You know, so there's different perceptions of it. For me, it's personally, it's an opportunity to make things better. Young people are often encouraged to take on leadership roles as they move up the career ladder. But but why is this? What is it about these leadership positions that make them leadership positions? Well, again, because all of these positions come with responsibilities and opportunities to shape and guide, you know, whatever the sphere of influence is. You know, so if you are 
uh, and associate dean of education, then you as a leader have an opportunity to shape those programs and how those programs are delivered and who gets into those programs. So that's your sphere of influence. You know, if you are a vice president of research at a university, then you have the opportunity to have your voice heard on what are the important priorities for research for your university. You know, uh, make some decisions around those. Uh, be able to figure out uh, if not why or what, at least the how. Right. So those are all opportunities to shape things and to make a change and improve things. So what do you think are the sort of skills that are needed for someone to be in a leadership position? Um, <laughs> prototypically, you know, I would say the current leadership model is of a person who projects confidence, who projects com competence, confidence, and has that voice that basically convinces everybody that what they're saying is the right thing and will lead to achieving the vision, right? So that's what everybody currently looks for in a leader. And that's why leadership positions are still for last 20 years are dominated by men, not because women are not rising through the ranks, but at a certain point, they hit that ceiling because that projection of competence, confidence, convincing people that their vision is the way to move things is a very alpha white male strategy. And the corporate leadership, most leaderships are still functioning at that. Why doesn't this model fit most women? A lot of women are very hard on their own competence. Right. I, I think uh, Hillary Clinton said that in an interview that she's hired hundreds of men and women into positions. And most frequently, women will come after they get the position and say, why did you hire me? Uh, I didn't think I was going to get this position. And I can certainly say that of myself, that I didn't think I was going to get this position because I could see so many gaps in my climb up the through the ranks. For most men, as for you know, Hillary Clinton's interview, they will come and say, what took you so long? I'm amazing. <laughs> right? So that competence and confidence difference is where women hit the ceiling. So either you override that by adapting your personality. So you become people like me who can who speak up, who are not afraid to, you know, speak up multiple times not afraid to be the loud voice on the table uh, and adapt your uh, personality to look and act confident or you're not considered a leader. Okay, but I can see another or here. So either you change your personality and adapt or you don't become a leader or, and here's the other or, the current view of leadership and leadership models in academia are themselves adapted. Do you see that happening? So, you know, uh, it should adapt because that's not to say, and I certainly know and have a lot of admiration for 
leaders who fit into sort of the prototypical leader because they are generous people who have been executed amazing visions and have done as much as they could for people who work with them. You know, so there are amazing leaders who fit into that alpha male, you know, phenotype. Uh, but there are also equal number of them or more who are very focused on sort of their own ambitions and what they want to, you know, do and succeed. Uh, bringing in more women, and a lot of women like to basically get consensus views. You know, so they're not afraid. In fact, they want to hear what other people's views are and how they can build consensus so that they can be a forward movement with everybody on board. And I think both models have good complementarity. And I think seeing the, and having open recognition of that is really, really important, which is why women occupy a lot of the middle management and men occupy sort of the top tier level because consensus making is important at that middle management level. So having more women at the table starts to bring in a different point of view of how to make decisions and how to execute vision. So the hope is that as you go from 10 or 20% of women sitting around the table, you have 50% women sitting around the table, you can get the benefit of both kinds of leadership. At the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned that you weren't that typical personality type for a leader. Does that mean that you actually adapted who you were in order to prove to others that you were just as good as them? Absolutely. You know, I, uh, I come from a culture where I grew up with my mother continuously telling me, you're not special, don't try to stand out or attract attention. You know, so that was kind of like my upbringing to say, you're one of the crowd, don't think you're special, blend in. <laughs> you know, which does not fit in at all. <laughs> With the North American culture, it doesn't fit in with carving a career out in STEM, being a woman, being a racialized woman in this society. So uh, you can just imagine the, adapt the adaptations that had to happen, right? So uh, even through, even though I got scholarships all the way, you know, I had lots of recognitions for my PhD work it was just sort of that humbleness to sort of say, I'm honored, I'm humbled, you know, that my work is being recognized. Coming into North America, I thought that that's how I was supposed to be. That I was, I was doing great work, I was trying very hard, it was clear that my papers were getting published, I was doing really good work, so people would recognize that. And it took me a very long time to realize that here you actually have to talk yourself up. You know, people perceive you for who you project yourself to be. And that continues to this day <laughs> that I see a lot of my male colleagues, you know, sort of build this uh, image, if I may call that, you know. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Success. Uh, and that's what they project. And that's what works very well in this society. So as a woman and as a racialized researcher, that doesn't, that's not who you are or you, who you experience or your experience don't match with that. So you have to adapt, uh, right? And it doesn't come easily. So I started to, you know, for example, talk about my own research or talk it up and give media interviews, recognizing that uh, it's my responsibility to my funders and to my institution that if my research was something to be worth talking about, I needed to talk to people about it and disseminate that information. I want to talk a little bit now about your own leadership positions. So you hold two different positions of leadership, one as a research group leader and the other as a leader of an institute of research. Now, how do those two different leadership positions compare? I'm very different in those two roles. You know, so when I'm running my own institute team and my lab team, you know, the lab team is mostly trainees. So you do require somebody who can provide guidance, direction, mentorship, you know, in terms of where they're going. The institute team of about eight or 10 people that I um, provide leadership to is really professionals who know their jobs, who know exactly what they are supposed to be doing have very high level of responsibility. You know, so um, the that team, I really lead by sort of what would be my comfort zone, which is consensus building, right? So we put together a strategic plan. Every member of my team participated in that, regardless of whether they, have, they were doing administrative roles or they had PhDs and they were specialists. You know, we all sat around the table multiple times over a year and a half and had a good discussion of how would we do this? What would be the best outcomes? What are the different voices? And, you know, everybody had an opportunity to chip in and give their opinions. And every good idea was incorporated regardless of who it came from. When you sit at the, when I sit at the upper leadership tables, you know, I'm one of the 13 people or one of those 15, 16 people dominated by men. And there you have to speak up, you have to fight for your ideas, you have to be insistent that, you know, this is important, you know, this has to be looked at uh, more than others, because your voice needs to be, have a higher weight than everybody else's voice. You know, so, and it's an experience. We have a, a community of practice within the female leaders at that table, table so that we can support each other when we speak up. One of the other roles of leadership that you mentioned earlier was uh, that, they, that leaders are influencers. So when you sit in these two different leadership roles that you have, do you also have different types of influence? And, and how do you make those influences come about? Yeah. You, you know, so your sphere of influences is direct and indirect, right? So direct is 
my institute's funding, you know, the $30 million that pretty much are within my purview. And my predecessors may have chosen to just do what they think was right. I have a complete influence on how I determine what's the best ways to make the decisions. Uh, and then the uh, other uh, sphere of influence, which is indirect is where I'm not the ultimate decision maker, but certainly my voice counts, uh, right? So you have an indirect way of advising, influencing, providing your best advice. Uh, and that's where your competence and confidence comes into play. And what about for someone who is just starting out their own research lab? They're, they're a new group leader. Uh, so what is their sphere of influence like? And, and how do they build up their leadership style and profile? For early career investigators, you do not get trained when you start running a lab to be a leader, you know, because leadership basically means, first of all, you have to figure out your own value set. And then you have to bring in people who, um, who fall within that sphere of value set. Uh, and then you have to mentor people to, and your team to be mirror that and the outputs that come out of it. But nobody actually tells you that, you know, you don't even get to learn research management, which is how do you manage your finances when you are in the research lab? You know, how do you mentor people, right? So most people will sort of have a style that they cannot articulate clearly to themselves or to others. And then the, uh, there is an unclear expectation that everybody who works for them will follow their instructions or their unarticulated expectations. You know, so, uh, so having that instead of learning it by trial and error. And some people learn if you have a learning personality that reflects on how things went well and what went wrong, you will learn from those experiences, but it takes a while. And other people never learn. They just do what they do and everybody around them either learns to adapt or falls by the wayside, wayside, right? So that's why some graduate students will say, oh, my experience was amazing. And other people in the same lab will sort of say, I was miserable. Because those uh, framework and expectations and leadership style doesn't match with what they were expecting. So these leadership courses that are recommended for early career researchers and for, for all researchers, really, um, what do they do in your experience? What do they teach? Taking these leadership courses doesn't make you a leader. I think it helps you articulate yourself and provides you opportunities to think about those things for yourself. Because most of us are too busy to really sit down and sort of say, what should I think about? What is my leadership style? So uh, enrolling in these professional development or leadership courses really helps you to find that space and that guidance from somebody who does this to be able to have that clarity in your head so that now you can actually go and articulate that more clearly. You know, So I did that kind of in my late mid-career and I was able to identify and say, yeah, that's my style. That's how I like to do things. And then to learn and find my areas of discomfort, like 
now I know why I always hate to tell people to do their work because that's my area of discomfort. I don't like to confront a conflict with people to say, you're not doing your job. So how can I uh, get better at that? You know, and how can I do it in a way where I can overcome my discomfort, but also make it comfortable for the other person? You know, so it, it helps you with those skills. And I can't emphasize the earlier you do it, the better, because people around you are happier and you yourself are uh, a much better and happier person because nobody enjoys seeing people miserable around them. Definitely not. So if you don't mind, one last question about leadership, maybe a slightly meta one. Um, but how well do you think science is served by its leaders? um i guess that would depend on the old style leaders or the new leaders so i think the uh, is science being served well um i don't know i think we're in a area in a in an era of flux where the old leadership style is still very much dominant and holding on but I don't know that they have the support and respect of the younger scientists and trainees. So uh, hopefully as things, you know, as the older generation sort of passes over, the newer people who are much more culturally aware, are aware of the changes, are aware of the change in expectations, get up to those levels, then they will, serve well because the serve well really is a is a subjective thing you know the serve well includes a respect for who is in that position so when leaders are respected they serve well okay chari thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me about leadership it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much julie So before I sign off, I just wanted to ask that if you learned something new, you had an epiphany or you just enjoyed listening to this episode of Working Scientist, please do let us know by leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Gould.